If I have not met you before, my name is Matt. I am the pastor of communities and people here. Uh, you are joining us as we are in the fourth week of a series where we are working through our values as a church, traits, DNA for us as a people that we both want to exemplify, but we want to see God produce in us as well. So to start, though, we need to go back a little bit. Uh, I believe the year is 2010 or 11, and it's my sophomore year at Mount Hood Community College uh, in Gresham, Oregon, and I'm in my philosophy class. When my professor asked this question, by a show of hands, who here would say they are a Christian? Now, this story, yes. What? Oh, you're raising your hand. I was like, what? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That threw me off big time. I was like, is there a question already? Wow. <laughs> um, so ask that question. This story could go a couple different ways. Is Matt going to be too nervous to raise his hand as he's only been following Jesus for about a year's time now? Uh, after Matt and others raise their hands, is the professor going to just drill them on what they believe? Because we were starting this whole unit where Christianity was going to be one of the religions that we quote-unquote covered. But no, um, I did raise my hand. I was actually much bolder in my faith at that point, maybe recklessly um, bold, and my hand shot up right away. And no, he didn't drill us after that. But what the, the moment that I did not expect was to see some of the other hands that raised with mine as well. And I still, even as I'm saying it now, I still feel how my stomach felt in that moment as I saw two people that were three rows up from me raise their hands and, in my opinion, had been the most disrespectful, had been the most dishonoring, had been the most inappropriate and disengaged people in the entire class. And now there I am with my hand in the air, and I'm lumped in with them. Do I know the state of those individuals' hearts? No, I don't. I still, I mean, I hope that they, are, they know Jesus following Jesus, but if they're anything like me, there have been times in my life, no, throughout my whole life, I have always called myself a Christian. I started following Jesus, though, when I was 19. When I called myself a, a Christian when I was in middle school, elementary school, high school, Christian was just another word that went with many other titles that kind of described Matt's life. Matt, Matt, went, Matt grew up in Portland, Oregon. Matt is an Eldridge. He belongs to the Eldridge family. His parents are Jeff and Mindy. Matt went to David Douglas High School. Matt loves the Blazers and loves the Packers and loves sports. Matt loves to do active things. And oh yeah, Matt goes to church on Sundays and he's a Christian. Christian was a word that I would check on a box on a survey that was asking me where my morals most landed. But it was on par with what country I was from. It was on par from where my political stance was. Not that I really had one at that point in my life. Um, it was on par with the family I grew up in. It was on par with the school or the alma mater that I went to. And I wonder for some of us if it's been the same, that Christian is just one of many titles that kind of make up our identity as people instead of Christian being a word that summarizes the whole of our existence. Because to be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. To be someone following Christ and becoming more and more like him in our heart 
our mind, and our actions, that to be a Christian is the whole of our identity, not just one title amongst many. So our value today that we're talking about is what it means to be an intentional disciple. This is a word that actually is the only one that overlaps with our mission statement here as a church, that we are to gather as God's family. We are to grow as disciples of Jesus, and we're to go to our neighbors and the nations. And then in our list of values that we're working through as well, we have that we long to be a people that are marked with intentional discipleship. We want to be intentional disciples, and we will talk about that this morning, what it means to be an intentional disciple, but also what it means to make disciples intentionally. So how should we think about this title of disciple, this trait, or really this identity that we should be marked with? Because the trait more is that intentionality. So according to this article I read from the C.S. Lewis Institute, the word Christian, which I would say more often than not is the word used to describe people following Jesus, the word Christian is used in the New Testament a total of three times, while the word disciple is used over 230 times in the New Testament. Now, that's not to say to use the word Christian is wrong. But as we see in Acts 11.26, these are actually used as synonyms for one another. Here's what it says, verse 26. And when we found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. But I've seen throughout my time following Jesus, sometime we raise this level of disciple to a status that it's like the next level of what it is to be a Christian. But we are to see that anyone who has believed in Christ has this title, has this identity now of being a disciple of Jesus. Sometimes we've lost a bit of the root of that word Christian in our society, I think, where it's been watered down that somehow it can just be a box that we select on a survey and not the whole of our lives being submitted to our master Jesus. A simple definition of what it is to be a disciple, like you could find this in Webster's, is to be a learner or an apprentice or a student. In that same article from Thomas Terrence in, from the C.S. Lewis Institute, uh, he quotes two expanded definitions from a New Testament scholar, Michael Wilkins, and then theologian pastor, William Kynes. Here's Wilkins' uh, definition biblically of what he says a disciple is. A disciple is one who has come to Jesus for eternal life, has claimed Jesus as Savior and God, and has embarked on the life of of following Jesus. And then Kind's definition, I just love this one. A disciple is one who responds to the call of Jesus in faith, resulting in a relationship of absolute allegiance and supreme loyalty through which Jesus shares his own life and the disciple embarks on a lifetime of learning to become like his master. So Harvest, what does it look like for us to grow as disciples of Jesus? How might we have a DNA that we are marked with as a church to be intentional disciples and to make disciples intentionally? 
Because if you are here and you are a follower of Christ, you are a disciple. Well, first, let's talk about what it means to be an intentional disciple. And the first place we got to go is looking at Jesus himself. Because in, we could do a whole nother sermon on all the ways that we are being discipled all the time in this day and age. We are being discipled by things or by people that we are learning under, that we are submitting to and telling or asking them, teach me about this thing. Sometimes we do this knowingly. Sometimes this is just a byproduct of having a cell phone that we do this passively and we are just being taught. But here at Harvest, we don't want to just be discipled by anything or anyone. We want to be disciples of Jesus, the Christ. So we got to look at him. And where we're diving in, in Matthew chapter 4, a little context is Jesus has just been baptized by John and the Holy Spirit has descended on him like a dove, and the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted. Not only does Jesus resist the temptation, but resists the evil one, and now comes back into town, and he begins his earthly ministry of declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. And with that, accompanying this, his, his preaching of the kingdom of God or signs and wonders of the kingdom, evidence that the kingdom is here and now in the person of Jesus. And then we come to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. If you have a Bible, open it up. Let's turn there together. This is what Matthew writes. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The invitation from Jesus is to follow me. The invitation of a disciple is first and foremost to be with Jesus, to be where he's at, to be in close proximity to him. His invit invitation first is to himself, where he gives us a new identity, new purpose. Before we do anything, it's to be with Jesus. So to be an intentional disciple, we need to be with Jesus. And with that, we see in this passage two instances in Jesus' invitation to himself to follow him. We see someone taking hold of something, but we see people leaving something behind. That in order to take up this call of Jesus to follow him, we see Peter and his brother Andrew drop their nets, leave their life as fishermen to follow Jesus, to be with him. We see Andrew, uh, or no, we see James and John then in turn in the father or in the boat with their father. They leave their nets as well. They even disregard the, the thing that mattered most in that culture of family being the most important thing in life. They instead leave that behind to follow Jesus, to have him teach them what it truly means to be a part of family. That in following Christ, 
there is a leaving behind and being a disciple, our old way of living, our old way of thinking, so that all of our life can come in alignment with who Jesus is, his ways, so that we might follow him and take hold of this identity that he gives us, this mission that he gives us to be his disciples and to make disciples. To be a disciple of Jesus is an all-encompassing identity that saturates our whole being. And with that, there is a putting off of our old way of living. But what does it look like to, quote-unquote, be with Jesus? Like for us, right? For them, he calls them. They get to leave a physical boat and follow a physical person. And he said, hey, let's go over here. Oh, let, let's sit down. Let me teach you this. What does it look like for us in 2023 to be with Jesus. And I think it starts with taking the same posture that his disciples would have taken to learn from our teacher, Jesus. We see this posture in Luke chapter 10 in the home of Martha. At verse 38, it says, And Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Pause interesting that Martha is the one that does the inviting into her home. Jesus is there, so we're like, oh, this disciple story is going to happen with Martha. Er, No, it's her little sister Mary who all of a sudden we see sitting at Jesus' feet, taking in everything he says. She's taking the posture of a disciple, which in that day and age uh, was to sit under a master's teaching, to sit at their rabbi's feet as apprentices, to learn from him, which was super unlikely for a woman in that time to be taking this posture. But Mary seems to see that Jesus is more than just a rabbi or a teacher, and she wants to learn from him. She wants to follow him. Let's keep going. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The better thing that Mary chose was to sit as a disciple, as a learner at Jesus' feet. Martha's busy work of preparing the house, of cooking a meal, cleaning, whatever it could be, it wasn't wrong, it wasn't sin, but she's missing out on Jesus' invitation to come and learn from me as a disciple. And I just connect so much with the character of Martha Because how often for me in ministry is Jesus, quote unquote, in my home, in my proximity, in my space, and I have all these other things I want to do that are all focused on him, are all about him, all these things I want to do for him. And yet, am I doing that while being present with him, being with Jesus and taking that invitation first before anything else matters whatsoever? how do we not miss out on this better thing that Jesus invites us to, to be with him? Because for some of us, when we open God's word, we think of this as a way to be with Jesus, and it is, but we get caught in checklists and read-throughs of just trying to get through the next chapter. 
just trying to reach our goal by the end of the year. Or we just want to accrue all this knowledge, and knowledge isn't bad by itself. But where it can be dangerous is if we miss Jesus' invitation to be with him as we open up God's word. That John makes it known that Jesus is the word became flesh. As Jesus is has just resurrected. He's on the road to Emmaus with two followers of him, but he, Jesus is being coy. Jesus is having a little bit of fun, it seems like. Jesus is fun. Uh, and he is not revealing himself to these two followers, and he's like, what are, what are you guys talking about? What's been going on in this area? And they're like, well, this guy that we were following, we thought he was the Messiah. They killed him, and now we're getting these claims that he's raised from the dead. And the irony is just like, you just imagine Jesus like, oh, tell me more, right? Like, it's just so awesome that he chooses to do this in this way. And then they're like, we don't know what to think. We don't know what to do. So Jesus is like, hey, let me show you how Moses and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, have pointed to this very thing. And it's all pointed to me. When we open any part of Scripture, we recognize that the whole of the story points to Jesus, and not just as a figure that we should know as the main character of a story, but a living and breathing God who is alive now, that when we open his word, when we open Scripture, he is present with us, not just because of the words on a page, but because he is alive. When we open God's word, and we should, we should take time to be alone with God. Jesus made time to get away, to be alone with his Father, to pray. Would we stop and just recognize that Jesus is with us, and the goal of this is to be with Jesus? But thankfully, God is much bigger than just saying, hey, it's only when you open this book, or only when you're praying that I'm with you, or that you can be with me. In John 14, 26, before Jesus dies, he lets his disciples know, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you, that Jesus' own spirit dwells in Jesus' people, in his disciples, anyone who has trusted in him, that we have access to the Father, that we have access to the presence of Jesus to teach us, to learn from him, to grow. And also, this is the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that we have that sort of power dwelling in our being as disciples. And so that means that when I'm at the grocery store, or when I'm watching a Blazer game, or when I'm putting my son down for a nap, or that when I'm hanging out with my wife, or I'm playing disc golf by myself or with friends. That is an opportunity to be with Jesus. To recognize the gift of those things, to learn from him in those circumstances, and to want to be like my master. We remember as we make it our aim to be disciples of our rabbi, of our teacher Jesus, that he's not simply just a good teacher that he's God incarnate. And that what we learn from him is not first and foremost academic, but he teaches us to receive his grace, to extend his love to our enemies, 
to be a servant to all. That in him there is power and freedom from sin and death and shame. This is what he is teaching us all the time as we follow him in all circumstances. And as we are with him, we are not only with the all-knowing, omniscient God, but also Jesus knows us because he was tempted in every way, as Hebrews 4 says. He was tempted just as we are, and he empathizes with our weaknesses. We learn from a God who knows what it's like to be in a broken world. So when we experience brokenness and suffering, we can say, Jesus, would you teach me what it means to walk through this like you would? But thankfully, as Jesus calls individuals to follow him, to become disciples, we are also brought together as a family. So as intentional disciples, we then intentionally are a part of a Jesus-centered community. And maybe your minds go first to Sunday morning gatherings, to a gathering like this. And yes, your mind should go there. What we do here does matter and is of importance. That we sit under Jesus' teaching together. That we grow together. That we pray and we worship as disciples together. That people of all different walks and backgrounds are coming together with the same focus on the same Lord, the same Savior. But let me give you a quote from pastor author uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, who was a pastor in Tacoma and I believe now is a pastor in the Seattle area. Um, This is a quote from his book, Saturate, that is all about the life of a disciple. He says this, Jesus didn't come to earth, take on human flesh, live among people as the servant of all, suffer and die so that we could just go to church for a couple of hours a week. No, he wants it all. He wants all of our lives, all the time. He wants to fill every person in every place, doing everything to glorify God. Just as when Jesus called his first disciples to follow him, when he calls people to be his disciples today, he intends it to be an all-of-life kind of thing. That affects everything. I could just sit in this quote over and over again, And just think about all the ways that I need the whole of my life to be in allegiance to Jesus in the areas where I still have kept him at a standstill, trying to stiff arm his gospel because that's just too uncomfortable. Or actually, I'm really really comfortable there. Like, don't mess with that, Jesus. But if we want this quote as a church to become our reality, that it isn't just in our Sunday gatherings that we're disciples of Jesus, that we haven't just compartmentalized following Jesus to Sunday mornings or Wednesday night it's at youth group or when we start community groups, whatever night of the week that is, that we want this to be an all-of-life thing together, we need to be gathering Well, we need to be with Jesus outside of those times, but we also need to be gathering with other fellow disciples outside of those set times too. We need life-on-life community. In two weeks, we're actually going to have a sermon centered on community as we kind of gear up to launch community groups in 2024 here at Harvest, and we'll get to dive into some of these things more. But how I want us to think about it today 
because community groups aren't the only answer to this, right? We hope that community groups foster a desire as God's people to see our need for one another and to have this kind of life-on-life community as disciples following the same teacher, the same Lord. But how I want us to think about it today is looking for in our lives, do we have these three different types of relationships with other believers? Do we have people in our lives that are further along? Do we have people in our lives that are in the same boat as us? And do we have people in our lives that if it weren't for Jesus, you wouldn't be caught dead with them? That one will be fun. Further along. We all have not arrived. Right? Amen. Thanks, Dean. That's good to hear. (laughs) I, I can say that now, and I know my weaknesses and my brokenness. I have not arrived. Uh, in, well, no, I won't go there yet. I have not arrived. We have not arrived. There are people that we need to surround ourselves with that have been discipling under Jesus longer than we have. And maybe if it's not longer, but maybe it's in specific ways that we need people that are following Jesus who have been parents longer and they know what it looks like to raise a child wanting to disciple them as well. We need people that have been involved in that ministry you're interested in getting involved with who are pouring into us so they can show us what it looks like to actually step into that ministry and and, and live out the gospel in that way. We need people that maybe have been in that line of work and we're just like, what does it look like to live for Jesus as a doctor, as a nurse, or as a teacher in this day and age? How do I surround myself with other believers that have been doing it longer than I have? I've been meeting with uh, a mentor, a guy named CJ Coffey, who's a pastor in Portland for, I think, about five or six years now. Um, And most of the time, we set up something that is strategic of like working through a book together that we'll just, we're we're doing it side by side and then just talking about the things that it draws out with specific topics when it comes to ministry or what it looks like to lead or this theological issue or topic, bless you. Um, Or more often than not, there's something that's been going on in my month, my week, the season of life, ministry, church, family, who knows what it is, that CJ's like, how are you doing, Matt? And I just go, well, blah, 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 right? Just like it all comes out, and the whole book thing is just totally out the window. And I get to sit with this guy who's been following Jesus much longer than I have, that I respect. And most of the time, I'm waiting for him to give me this big, awesome advice. And he goes, mm, yeah, that is hard. And it really does help, though. I mean, he points me to Jesus, too. He's not there to fix all my problems. But he's there to remind me that, for one, I'm not alone. And over and over again, Kathleen, my wife, has said when I get home, she's like, you just seem lighter after meeting with CJ. And it's not just CJ. Like, I I have other people that are in my life. I just saw quickly as I got into ministry, I need to surround myself with people that have been doing this longer. And the true, uh, the same is true for anyone following Jesus. Do you have relationships in your life that are on a regular basis of people that have been following him longer or have followed him deeper in that area where you need to grow as a disciple? But do we also have people that are in the same boat as us? And what do I mean by that? Do we have transparent, authentic friendship 
with people who are following Jesus, people who you can let see all the brokenness that on a Sunday morning, most of us are terrified that some of that is going to get out during a worship song or a passage is going to be read and it's going to hit that thing that we're so afraid. Oh no, I'm starting to tear up for some reason. I don't think that's allowed at church, which it is. Come on. Like part of being a disciple of Jesus is that we are in full recognition that we are broken. We are all in need of growing. We are all in need of healing. And that sometimes the brokenness from our our past, our old self, likes to rear its nasty head again in our lives, and we're confronted with it. And we need to have the freedom and to know that who the church is for is for broken people who have been saved by grace, and now we are growing together in efforts to follow Jesus, who is the one that was broken for us so that we could be made whole. That is the gospel. It isn't for you to show up here and put your best foot forward in how life is going. And where we live, I I was talking with Harvest Life Group on Monday about this, where we live wants to tell us sometimes intensely and sometimes passively that you should have it all together. That your status, your, your, your wealth, your house, how your family's doing it, all of it speaks about a story of how well you're doing or not. And so we try to use those things to keep them in their perfect little boxes to show people, look, I'm doing okay. When the fact is that all of us are in desperate need of a Savior. And the church should be a place where the other Christians should be a place where we can transparently be broken. And part of the reason for that is what Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, part of the reason that we open up about the hard things in life isn't just so that we have an audience for it, but it's to be encouraged by our brothers and sisters who are following Jesus saying, hey, remember, remember who it is that we are discipling under. Remember what he did. Remember what it means to follow him. That's not you anymore. And what shame and what guilt wants to do is say, hey, you don't belong there anymore. You're isolated. You, you're too dirty or you're too messed up or you let too many people down. That brokenness has no place in the church. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to say, no, that's not true. Like what Jesus has done is perfect and it's whole and it can't be defeated by sin and death. The opposite is true. That's what he did to it. That's why we gather. But we also need people in our lives that otherwise we wouldn't be caught dead with. Because if not for following Jesus and discipling under the same teacher, you would have nothing to do with them. But as you have grown closer in your proximity to Jesus, he brings you closer into proximity with people that you would never choose to be around. Because you have the same Lord. You have the same Savior. And on top of that, we just need people in our lives that are different than us. We need people that think differently, have different viewpoints, have different backgrounds, see things very differently, have different gifts, have different weaknesses. And God uses all of those things and the challenging things in those relationships to ultimately help us to grow as disciples of him because he loves them wholly. That's never been hard for him. As much as it's hard for us at times, it was never hard for Jesus to love that person. He wants to grow us in loving that individual. And guess what? I was thinking about this. 
Sometimes we take the mindset that, oh man, thank you, Lord, for all these hard people you've brought into my life to grow me. I bet there's some people that are praying that same prayer about me and about you. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I rub people the wrong way. I say things. I'm annoying, right? I talk too much. And Jesus, (laughs) whoever said that's really funny. And we're going to talk later. Um, No, just kidding. Jesus uses my brokenness to help others grow. And only he could be that good. And so Jesus uses your brokenness to help others grow too. When he brings us close into proximity to himself, it does get messy because there's other people there that aren't like us. But praise God that the kingdom of God is not just a bunch of Matt Eldridge's, but it is a multi-ethnic community of people, all different backgrounds that all are coming together saying, praise Jesus for what he has done. So not only are we to be intentional disciples, but we are to make disciples intentionally. That the story of scripture for God's people is that God's people have been blessed to be a blessing. As Paul writes later, he says, God has comforted you so that now with the same comfort from God that you've received, you can comfort others as well. All of what we've received is to be then given out as well. Our discipleship to Jesus isn't just about personal betterment, about being the best us that we can be, but it's actually so that we might follow Jesus and invite others to follow Jesus as well, to give it away. Thomas Terence from that article from the C.S. Lewis Institute says, just as clearly the mission is focused on one thing, making disciples. And clearer still, making disciples is a matter of bringing lost sinners to salvation in Jesus Christ and helping them understand and obey his teachings. Making disciples must overflow from our being with Jesus. There's been the saying um, that's gone around in the church, and I'm sure in other sects as well, that we can only take people as far as we have gone. And there's some problems with that statement, but what's true about that statement, if it's applied correctly, is that as we seek to make disciples intentionally, are we drawing from a deep well of trust and saying yes to Jesus over and over again, so that when we are saying, hey, follow me as I follow Christ, It's coming out of the overflow of our own being with Jesus, not just trying to do something Jesus said just to do it and check a box, but out of the overflow of our depth of relationship with him, we are inviting people to come, just as Jesus invited his own disciples to come and see my relationship with my father. We do the same thing in turn, and that means that when we fail, when we sin, we also get to make disciples that way of showing them what it looks like to repent, what it looks like to say I'm sorry and to ask for forgiveness. Making disciples in the church has had many fads over the years, oftentimes promoting a formula or a step-by-step process that is well-intentioned and can be very helpful, but oftentimes ran the risk of missing the heart of what Jesus says to all believers 
in Matthew 28. In verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, which is just an incredible statement. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We go back to Matthew chapter 4. Where did this all start with his disciples? He says, Follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. We see Jesus reiterating that second part here. I, will, I have made you to make disciples. You are going to go after people now so that they might follow me too. But the first part, the follow me, hasn't changed either because he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That this whole thing has centered around following me, being with me, and it still does. This isn't about how smart you are, how much you've read your Bible. It isn't about like your theological background and if you went to seminary or not, or if you have a profession as a minister, like to be able to do this. This isn't about your family history or how good or bad of a sinner were you actually in your previous life. All of this has to do with all sorts of different people, simple and educated, coming together to say it's all about Jesus. I worked with a ministry many, many years ago where a group of us were getting some training on going to those that were on the margins. Uh, and that was kind of the driving message that um, they brought in this guest speaker to, to really drive home. And, um, and everything this guy said, super well-intentioned, but I remember some of the things that he said in the moment kind of didn't sit right with me in the training. Not that they were wrong necessarily, but it was like, ah, what does he mean by that? For starters, one of the things that, that he said, and maybe some of you have heard something similar in your ministry experience, is go be Jesus to people. And then with that, he said, maybe you are the only picture of Jesus in that person's life. Which with the first one, why, or the second one, why it didn't sit with me, I was like, man, God is not so limited that all he needs is Matt, right? That I'm the only one. There's no way. He's got all the resources to show Jesus in people's lives. But the first part, like, go be Jesus to people. I maybe even have said that throughout my life at times, working in ministry. But I heard a sermon from Jeff Vanderstelt, that, that author pastor in Tacoma, that really just shifted gears for me. And then later, it, it caused me to read his book, Saturate. And here's what he says. Only Jesus can be Jesus to people. And the only way for Jesus to be Jesus to people through you is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our goal in making disciples is always to bring people to Jesus. We are not leading people to ourselves and all our weird quirks and the hills that we die on that don't make any sense, right? Like even now as I'm teaching, I'm, I hope that you see this is Jesus' invitation to discipleship, not Matt's invitation to discipleship, because guess what? I mess this up all the time. I forget and have to be reminded all the time what it means to be a disciple, what it means to make disciples. 
what people need is Jesus to be their Savior. And that means that if this is all done through the work of his Holy Spirit living in you, you have everything you need to make disciples. Is there room to grow? Always. Is there ways that we need to be sharpened? Totally. But Jesus unleashes his people as disciples, then in turn to make disciples. Are strategies helpful? Yes. Are ministries important? Of course. But if we are more reliant on a strategy or a ministry than on the Holy Spirit, we run the risk of bringing people to something other than the person of Jesus. So two things to end on. Are we committed to making disciples intentionally in the ordinary day-to-day? And then with that, are we expectant for the extraordinary? Because making disciples, sometimes we make it out to be this big thing that's like, okay, it's this sit-down weekly, and we're doing this study, and we're doing that. And yes, that's a good thing that can totally happen as you're discipling someone else. But in line at the grocery store, as you are talking with the employee there, are we reflecting what Jesus is like and being kind to them? Even Greg mentioned, I believe, in a couple weeks ago in a sermon that he's made a point to to try to go to the same uh, checker at this store over and over again to develop a relationship with that individual. When we're in line at stores, are you like me, and just the second there's any stillness or silence, do you hop on your phone to check something instead of being wide-eyed and attentive to what God might be doing in your midst? With all those family gatherings that are coming up with the holidays that some of us are really looking forward to, and some of you I just made you like gulp, um, are we going into those gatherings prayerful? And not just beforehand, but during, asking God, God, would you give me eyes to see moments where I might encourage, I might listen to, I might even, there might be a question I could ask of that family member that ultimately leads to a conversation about you, or at least them just knowing that I love them. As we gather together as a church this morning, are we something that feels maybe ordinary to us, that we do this on a regular basis? Are we attentive to God and how he may want to use us to encourage, to pray with, to listen to a brother or sister. But in the ordinary things of life, are we expectant that our God is anything but ordinary? Yes, he works slowly through the ups and downs of very normal and monotonous things, but always his work is extraordinary that our God is the one who saves a man hanging on the cross next to him in an instant, a life of sin transformed into someone who then is going to see Jesus face to face in his kingdom. And if it's true for that man, it's true for that friend that you've prayed for for 20 years or for that neighbor that you have. That he is the God of the universe who heals deep spiritual pains and wounds and exposes darkness. That he's a God who reconciles and restores the most broken of relationships. 
And we can't force his hand with these things. It's not just like we can be like, hey, God, I need you to be extraordinary right now, so you're going to do this thing. Sometimes Christians have gotten too focused on the extraordinary and haven't been just diligent and obedient to the ordinary things. But also, we can't just dumb God down to being able to wrap our minds around what he can or can't do based off who we are and our experience. We have to take the mindset of Ephesians 3, that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are in desperate need of your help in all things, all the time. And, and my prayer, I guess for my, my own heart, my own life, Lord, is I, I just don't even know my own blind spots and where I've tried to, like, quarantine you off to not, to not be Lord, that I haven't learned from you in these ways. And all the time, God, I'm sure I and my brothers and sisters are just confronted with ways that you're inviting us into a new way of thinking, a new way of living. Would you help us to be obedient, to follow you, to, to long to be with you, Jesus, in all that we do? And Lord, would you help us to take steps in wanting to make disciples? Would this be something that our church is marked with? That we care for our brother and sister in this space, wanting to disciple them in encouragement, but also we care for our neighbor, we care for the person that we're in line behind, that we care for the people that are uh, the parents on our kids' sports team. We care for the classroom our kids are in. We care for our coworkers. Lord, would you just increase our awareness of how you are at work? And would we say yes to your invitation that out of the overflow of our relationship with you, we would invite people to see who you are and say yes to Jesus. Only you can do this, God. Only Jesus. You can be Jesus to us. Would you help us in our weakness to take hold of you more and more? In your name, amen.